everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. I'm joined by Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're very pleased this week to have as our guest Michael Mann, who is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University. He also directs the PSU Earth System Science Center, and he's the co-author of The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Destroying the Planet, Ruining Our Politics, and driving us crazy. Thank you for joining our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. And so uh, some days ago, you were a witness. Uh, I believe you were invited by the Democrats as the sane voice on the panel for this House committee hearing. And you were asked to come. Uh, Lamar Smith is the uh, head of the House uh, Science, Space, and tech committee in the house and you were invited to come and uh, you were on this panel. I wanted to start by sharing your experience because it was very representative of the political climate we find ourselves in now. And you were addressing climate change, but for the most part, it seemed there were a lot of politicians who were trying to you know, drive home their skepticism about climate change. Yeah, it, it's pretty remarkable because, um, you know, when you look at the scientific evidence for climate change, um, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, which is, um, you know, our most distinguished uh, scientific body, um, has very clearly weighed in uh, on the matter that climate change is real, it's human-caused, and it represents a threat. Um, every scientific society in the U.S., that has weighed in on the matter has come to the same conclusion. And uh, anywhere between 97 and 99 percent of publishing scientists, depending on the study um, that you look at, uh, all on record. Climate change is real. It's human caused. Um, it's already a problem. So this is the overwhelming consensus of the world scientists. And yet at that congressional hearing, as you noted, um, I was the only witness who was there uh, basically to you know, put forward the consensus view uh, on the science. And then there were three contrarian witnesses um, who have uh, you know, attempted to uh, attack the science in various ways in the past. Um, so, you know, that's one, one out of four, 25% of the witnesses um, who, who were invited, that's me, um, representing the mainstream view of climate change, 75% um, representing the fringe uh, views of a small band of contrarians. And uh, as I pointed out at the hearing, you know, that's not an auspicious way to start out. Um, if, if the intent of the hearing was to have an honest uh, assessment of the scientific evidence. Real quick, who is a zero point one, like zero one percent of scientists? That, like we always say, I'd love to know, like who's this one scientist that's going around making it ninety nine percent of scientists only? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and <laughs> in, indeed, it is. You know, uh, almost always the the same usual suspects, the the three contrarians um, who testified at this uh, hearing, um, uh, are uh, frequent uh, guests of uh, the Republicans um, in the various hearings that have been uh, held uh, over the years, and so they're always going to the same small fringe group of contrarians. Um, and yeah, ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent. That means you know a sliver of one to three percent of publishing scientists who uh, 
you know, do not accept the, the consensus that climate change is real and human caused, um, you know, that that percentage, uh, you would find it in almost any field to some extent. Um, there's always, you know, in, in the world of science, there are always iconoclasts mm. and, you know, devil's advocates, just like in, the, in, in, you know, ordinary life. There are always people who, uh, you know, actually like to take on a contrarian uh, viewpoint. Um, in the case of climate change denial, however, there's an extra incentive for those folks uh, because fossil fuel interests are more than happy to, you know, provide funds for them in various ways to promote them, to sell their books, to fly them around first class, to um, give uh, presentations. Um, so there's this extra incentive to that small fringe of scientists who hold contrarian viewpoints. And that's a positive, you know, sort of reinforcing mechanism that um, keeps you know, keeps them going and basically ensures that there will always be, you'll always be able to find a small number of individuals um, who are willing to attack, you know, the, the scientific community and their fellow scientists. Um, some of them are getting paid a pretty penny for doing so. Some of them perhaps just like uh, hearing the, the sound of their own voices, you know, fairly marginal scientists, um, and you probably wouldn't, wouldn't hear much from them or about them if not for the fact that they were playing this critical role in this raging societal debate over climate change and what to do about it. Um, that provides them uh, a prominence uh, that they would otherwise not have in our public discourse. And I think that's appealing to some of these folks. So, you know, it's unfortunate that, um, you know, that that small fringe of um, uh, individuals, uh, scientists who do not accept mainstream science are given this stage, are given this amazing megaphone in the form of, you know, testifying at hearings. Um, you know, that's, it really does distort the, the, the message that the public receives when they see three contrarians and only one scientist representing the mainstream view of climate change. Um, it basically you know, serves the agenda of the fossil fuel interests who fund the chairman, you know, Chairman Lamar Smith's campaigns of creating this sense that there is a debate when, in fact, there really isn't. So let's talk about Lamar and, and let's also uh, bring in uh, the way in which we've seen some uh, attacks and negativity ramp up towards scientists in the last uh, few months especially yeah. since Donald Trump's inauguration. I mean, my question to you is what you were thinking when you were basically scolded for quoting a Science Magazine article that included comments from the chairman himself, who I think, you know, this was representative of what he believes he would, I would presumably think he'd stand up for what he had said at he was at a Heartland Institute conference. So, yeah. I mean, you can talk about the what what happened and, and maybe shed some uh, light on uh, the role of the Heartland Institute and maybe what kind of impact you feel in your field in the field of science from the climate denial work that they do. Yeah, thanks for the question. I think it was a very telling moment. <laughs> it was certainly, uh, in my view, a critical moment in that hearing. Um, when I pointed out to the chairman um, that you know, Science Magazine um, had uh, you know, written an article about 
his recent keynote address to the Heartland Institute. The Heartland Institute is a um, industry-funded, uh, basically a front group uh, for tobacco interests and fossil fuel interests. Um, um, they have spent decades trying to attack the science linking you know, the, the use of tobacco products to human health um, ailments. Um, and, of course, today they're taking uh, large amounts of money from fossil fuel interests to try to attack the science linking uh, the burning of fossil fuels to uh, the warming of the planet and the change in climate that we are experiencing. Um, so, you know, the fact that the chair of the House Science Committee would proudly um, speak at an anti-science conference um, of a group that exists only to attack science and to confuse the public and policymakers about the, the nature of our scientific understanding, uh, I find that uh, fairly appalling. And in the hearing, I pointed out, I simply quoted from that article in Science that summarized how Chairman Smith had basically said at that meeting that he saw his role as the chair of the House Science Committee not to advance science, not to find ways to um, support uh, the advance of scientific research in, in the country, uh, but to advance his political agenda. And I plainly stated uh, to him uh, at the hearing, um, I said, I find that deeply disturbing, Chairman. And he then immediately sought to uh, shoot the messenger, to try to discredit the source. Um, and he said with a straight face, he's talking about Science Magazine, the most respected science publication um, in the country. Um, he said, well, that's a biased source. And it, I thought it really betrayed the sort of the mindset of, of people like Lamar Smith. They have such a warped view of reality um, that, you know, the overwhelming consensus of uh, the world's scientists they view as, as a conspiracy, and the most respected uh, publications they dismiss as biased. Um, and, you know, who does Lamar Smith um, cite when he tries to make advance his arguments? Uh, sources like Fox News and Breitbart News. So, you know, there's an amazing amount of projection going on here, which is to say, you know, uh, projection being the, the tactic of impugning your critics by accusing them of the very thing that you are guilty of. And in this case, of course, Lamar Smith um, does happen to rely on heavily biased sources to promote his anti-scientific views, but to dismiss the journal, um, you know, the, the, the science, uh, science magazine as a biased source really speaks to the extent to which, you know, climate change deniers like Lamar Smith have buried themselves in a world of alternative facts and truly fake news. <laughs> You know, I, being a climate scientist yourself, I'm curious. Um, I imagine it's probably one of the most frustrating positions to be in because even before Trump, I mean, it, it, it took a while for the media to even start to accept the fact that climate change is real and to stop giving airtime to the other side, to the, you know, yeah. the marginal people that you were mentioning before. Um, so, yeah. like, so what is that like? Like how, on you on a personal level and I guess your colleagues, like, what is it like when you're sort of trying, you know, screaming or trying to say, I guess, politely that, you know, look what's happening around you and no one's really listening? Um, yeah. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's 
of course, frustrating to, to know that there's overwhelming scientific evidence for, um, you know, this, this problem, uh, human-caused warming of the planet, and it, it represents a distinct threat. And we, you know, climate scientists are simply trying to do our job in informing uh, the public and policymakers about the nature of this threat. Um, you know, after all, we are funded by the taxpayers, and I see it as part of our duty uh, to convey to the public and to policymakers the implications of what we're finding. In fact, it, it would be a dereliction of our responsibility not to do that. Um, and in return for that, instead we get attacked by you know, folks like the Mar Smith, by front groups um, and organizations tied to the fossil fuel industry, uh, by right-leaning uh, media outlets that basically are just mouthpieces for uh, fossil fuel interests. And it, naturally, that's a bit frustrating. It's not what I thought I signed up for when I double majored in applied math and <laughs> physics um, as an undergraduate. I, I didn't think I was signing up uh, for a life of battling against the forces of anti-science. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, if you do research um, in an area of science where the findings of the scientific community uh, are proving inconvenient to powerful special interests, um, yet you're going to get attacked. And, and I'll tell you, you've got to grow a thick skin. Um, and, and, and I have. I've come to recognize that you know, these attacks, so as personal as they may seem, they're not personal. They are aimed at discrediting you know, me and other climate scientists because of the threat of the message that we're trying to deliver to the public. And we cannot allow that to dissuade us from, from continuing to try to communicate that message because the stakes are, are simply too great. Um, we literally, literally are talking about the fate of the planet uh, and what sort of planet we leave behind for our, our children and grandchildren. Um, the stakes couldn't be greater. And so I try not to, to let you know, the personal attacks uh, get to me, but it, it, they do speak to sort of the loss of, of good faith discourse um, today um, and the fact that you know, in our, our politics, some who uh, don't like the implications of science will just sort of try to create this facade, this alternative reality um, where, you know, the facts are the opposite of what they actually are. Um, it makes it very difficult to have, you know, a meaningful discussion uh, about this problem when those on the other side refuse to even accept the basic facts. And there's a famous saying um, that I, I like to quote uh, that originated with da Daniel P. Moynihan, who's a former uh, senator from New York, um, and he once famously said, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Well, in today's world, as we know, um, many feel that they're entitled to their own facts, and, and that's uh, distressing and problematic. Well, it is remarkable that everyone's always talking about their belief in climate change. And I don't know if you can have a belief because <laughs> like scientists, science doesn't really deal with beliefs, correct? That like, this is what it is, whether you believe that it's actually happening or not. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the great science commuter, uh, c communicator, uh, I think has uh, put it best when he, he said, um, you know, that the, the, the wonderful thing about science is it's true whether or not you believe it. So uh, well, let me ask you, one of the ways that you decided to approach this predicament where 
you we, we've had climate denial gain some kind of power and influence over policy in this country. As you wrote this book that had a uh, uh, satire in it, and I, I'm, I'm interested in your choice to use this as a tool to educate people. Uh, it suggests to me that just sharing science wasn't good enough, that at some level, on some level, you had to bring in uh, this, this humor as a device to reach people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you the funny thing about the book. We published it last fall, um, September. We had no idea how prescient <laughs> the book would, would, would seem um, just uh, you know, a few months later, uh, given the, the dramatic turn that our politics took with the, the last presidential election and the election of Donald Trump. Um, at the time we published the book in the fall, uh, we had, um, you know, colleagues, uh, critics uh, who, who said, you know, why are you writing a book about climate change denial? We're past all of that. You know, we're, we're, we're well on to solving this problem. You know, denialism is dead. Um, it's not something we even need to acknowledge any, anymore. And, of course, with the election of Donald Trump, our very first climate change denying president, um, that, uh, you know, obviously has um, – history has proven that wrong. <laughs> we, we are very much now back in the madhouse, as we call it, of um, climate change denial. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, – that, that is, you know, unfortunately um, – you know where you know where we stand today. That we're we're back in this fake debate uh, about whether climate change um, uh, even exists. Uh, we have a president who's appointed you know uh, climate change deniers to top administration positions, uh, EPA, Department of Energy. They're censoring climate information on government websites. They're trying to cut funding for. Uh, climate science. Um, they're trying, in fact, um, they've uh, threatened to uh, cut uh, funding for NASA's uh, satellites uh, that are critical uh, satellites uh, for measuring um, the attributes of the Earth system, including uh, climate. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, um, I, I think it's also the case, as you allude to, that in today's world, where people try to contest the facts with alternative facts, and um, it's very difficult sometimes to convince uh, so, you know people of something when they come at it purely from an ideological uh, viewpoint. And with climate change denial, um, it's almost become sort of part of the cultural ethos, the uh, tribal identity of conservatives in this country, that you're expected to deny climate change. Um, if you're going to be, you know, a, uh, a, a um, you know, a, an upstanding conservative, uh, and that, that obviously creates a huge problem and makes it very difficult to reach people when they approach this uh, purely from an ideological standpoint, because they're almost immune to facts facts just bounce off of them because they've already made up their mind. They don't want to be confused by the facts, as it were. Um, and so as you allude to, something that we've learned, I think, um, over the last decade or so is that uh, comedy can actually be a very powerful way to communicate inconvenient information to, to people who don't really necessarily want to hear that information. And I think it's why 
you know, John Stewart and, you know, John Oliver, um, Samantha B, uh, Bill Maher, um, some of our hardest hitting commentary uh, these days, social commentary and political commentary comes from comedians, comes from satirists, because they're able to cut through this sort of wall, this almost impenetrable wall that people put up. Um, to uh, essentially to shield themselves from from facts that might challenge their worldview. A comedy can sort of be a side door um, to get through to them. Uh, and, you know, Tom Tolles, in my view, has been doing some of the hardest-hitting commentary on climate change in our entire uh, media uh, on the pages of the Washington Post um, with uh, the cartoons he's done about climate change and climate change denial over the years. So needless to say, um, when, you know, when this opportunity uh, made itself available uh, for, you know, to, to collaborate with, with Tom on this effort, um, I, you know, I, I seized it immediately uh, because I knew that we potentially had, you know, a very useful new tool in our arsenal to try to, to cut through um, the morass um, on, of climate change denialism. And so that, that was the idea behind the book. As I said, we had no idea how prophetic the book would end up uh, being, uh, given you know, the turn that we took in our last election and the fact that we now have a climate change-denying president. Suddenly the book uh, seems far more relevant than it otherwise might have been if you know, Hillary Clinton um, had become president. Well, I have one more question before we end the interview, but uh, Rania, is there anything else you wanted to ask before? Um, well, how like, well, how screwed are we? Like, <laughs> like how bad is it? Like, be, like give us the real, yeah. like, tell us, you know, the reality of it. How bad is it? Yeah, I mean, so we're the fact that we're already seeing, you know, plainly now the impacts of climate change um, um, in many of the, the more extreme weather events we've seen over the last uh, couple of years. Um, we, we can see the fingerprint of human-caused climate change um, in that. That means, you know, it's like the iceberg. Once you can see the, the tip of the iceberg, you know that there's much more um, out there just below the surface. Mm -hmm. and, and thus it is w with climate change. The fact that we can cl so clearly see the impacts of climate change now means that we're actually committed to uh, some worsening uh, of, uh, of those impacts, to additional warming, additional sea level rise, additional increases in many of these extreme weather events, uh, unprecedented floods and droughts and heat waves. Um, that's the bad news. Uh, the good news is that we are still uh, fairly convinced that there is time to avert what would truly be called a catastrophe. Um, if we can keep warming below about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, and we're more than halfway there, and we will be there in a matter of decades if we just continue with business as usual burning of fossil fuels. But if you do the math, um, there is still time. We haven't yet burned through that carbon budget that places us in, you know, in, in the, the regime of uh, catastrophic climate change. Um, that means there is still uh -oh. to implement policies that will keep us below those dangerous levels. Um, and with the Paris Accord uh, last year, um, there was quite a bit of optimism that we now had an agreement among you know, nearly 200 nations from around the world, including the two largest emitters on the planet, the U.S. and China, that, that, that put us on a path where we could foresee uh, averting 
uh, that catastrophic warming of the planet. That task has been, been made a little bit more difficult now with the election of Donald Trump, and he's threatened to pull out of the uh, Paris Agreement. But uh, critically, China has actually not only shown resolve here, but they're actually doing even more than they committed to. Um, and they are decommissioning coal-fired power plants, and they are investing more in solar energy than anyone else, anyone else in the world. Um, in fact, they're producing so many cheap solar panels that they're bringing down the cost of solar energy for the rest of the world. So there are some reasons for cautious optimism. We can still do it. Uh, the challenge is going to be a little greater now, now that the, the U.S. is no longer taking a leadership position. And that means we have to leverage all of the political pressure we can to make sure that we uh, elect, you know, there's a midterm election in less than two years, elect policymakers, elect uh, uh, representatives who will represent our interests and the interests of our children and grandchildren in living, you know, in inheriting a livable climate rather than the fossil fuel interests that uh, fund their campaigns. So I have two quick questions I'd like to squeeze in here. First, uh, you don't have to give me a long answer, but our, uh, the, the climate denier who runs the EPA now, Scott Pruitt, uh, was going around talking about having emissions at pre-1994 levels and how uh, we could celebrate that as a country. And, and since we have a climate scientist here, I was wondering if you have any problems with that sort of statement. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm familiar with the, the specifics of that statement. Um, I know that he's opposed uh, to um, efforts to limit carbon emissions. In fact, as uh, EPA administrator, um, uh, in fact, when he was attorney general, actually, of Oklahoma, um, he basically ghost wrote for industry groups um, uh, letters and policy statements uh, attacking the EPA over um, its uh, efforts to regulate carbon emissions. And he was um, a part of a lawsuit uh, from a group of uh, extremely hard right-wing uh, attorney generals um, who uh, legally challenged the EPA's right to limit carbon emissions. So uh, Scott Pruitt has uh, demonstrated a total lack of commitment to doing anything on the climate issue. In, in fact, if, if anything, he has shown himself to be an adversary when it comes to the specific issue of climate change and when it comes to environmental protection in general. So uh, sadly, you know, in Scott Pruitt, we uh, literally have uh, the fox <laughs> guarding the hen house uh, when it comes to environmental sustainability and environmental protection. And that, that's a cause for concern. And uh, lastly, I would think it would be a mistake if I didn't mention that on April 22nd, uh, there are many scientists that are planning to participate in cities across the country in these um, actions or part of this March for Science uh, because of all of this concern, all of these things that we're talking about here. And, and I want to raise this with you, which you know, people don't usually think of scientists as people who are going to go out into the streets and protest. But uh, I guess to you, it really speaks to how dire things have become, doesn't it? It, it does, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to be there proudly. I'll be speaking at the rally, and I'll be marching with my good friend uh, Bill Nye, uh, the science guy. And, you know, I, it does speak volumes that uh, it's gotten to the point. The attacks against science have gotten to the point where scientists who has a lot 
they're quite conservative. They prefer to stay out of politics. Um, they prefer to be you know, left alone in their laboratories, thank you, <laughs> or you know, left um, to do what they love doing, which is you know, investigating you know, the, the way the world works, um, uh, solving problems, uh, figuring things out, um, doing experiments, um, training other scientists. Those are the things scientists prefer to spend their time doing. And when you see them marching in the streets, you know that the uh, attacks against science have have reached uh, yet a, a new sort of threshold. Um, uh, they've become so bad that scientists have decided they have no choice but to make their voices heard. And on April 22nd, uh, scientists are going to make their voices heard, and I'm looking forward to being part of that effort. Well, thanks again for doing this interview we really appreciate you sharing your time yeah thank you uh, so thank much you. and thank you for the and thank you for the work that you do it's very thanks so much guys really <laughs> hello everyone we have a abbreviated show for you this week and in fact we're going to be taking a two-week break but as always we wanted to give a shout to our new patrons and thank you for becoming supporters of the show. We also wanted to acknowledge a couple comments that were received from people over the past week. Unfortunately, uh, you will not have Rania's laugh to go along with the reading of these comments, so perhaps uh, this segment will lose some of its personality, but Nicholas said uh, that our discussion about Syria uh, recorded last weekend, for, for last weekend, was excellent, and also Rania kicking ass on dead pundits was very cool this week. Uh, we also received a comment from Jeff Brown, who shared some details about why he became a Patreon donor. And he said it was after hearing this fantastic episode, our discussion about Syria is what he was referring to. Rania and Kevin dissected the Syrian crisis in a very intelligent manner from multiple perspectives. They make CNN analysts look like brainwashed cult members. I especially like their blistering attack on liberals and progressives for not opposing regime change in Syria. I hope in a future episode they can shine some light on how the USA and its allies are supporting Islamic fundamentalists. After all, that is the Achilles heel of the anti-Assad forces. I'd be especially interested in the terrorist supply lines. If, for instance, those are Al-Qaeda affiliate supply lines cross the uh, Turkish border unopposed, then doesn't that make Erdogan an active supporter of those who destroyed the Twin Towers? Well, thank you, Jeff. We really appreciate you becoming a supporter of the show. And uh, so that does it. Uh, we just wanted to, again, acknowledge all of the fine support that we receive. And uh, we're going to be off for a couple of weeks. And then we'll be, we'll be back at the end of April. We've got some good guests planned for you. Until then, everyone, all the best. <laughs>